Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view of law and government. That's the view of our founders. They stated this clearly in the Declaration of Independence. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him, from him alone, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as a senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And on this fine Friday morning, my wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, constitutional instructor, is with me. And we're in the midst of a series looking at what in the world happened to our country and actually happened to the whole world in March 2020. What in the world was that insanity? And many people want to just forget about it, tend it didn't happen. But that's a very dangerous thing to do because something dramatic changed and something in terms of what the government is about changed. It appears to not any longer be about protecting our God-given rights. We know it was is pretty weak on on that uh, that score all along. But uh, what took place in uh, March 2020 revealed that our God-given rights were nothing of their concern. They are more concerned with a globalist agenda that had something to do with injecting every human being on the planet Earth with this experiment. Yeah, a- an experiment that <laughs> had never been tested on animals. And uh, the tests on humans have been very scanty uh, and all kinds of things were not revealed that are in it. And we're finding out more and more uh, as each week goes by the disastrous results of allowing these shots to be given worldwide. And uh, the 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 increase in what is called excess death. You might think, well, that's a strange term. What in the world is excess death? Well, the insurance industry, their entire business model depends on being able to predict accurately how many people are going to die each year. That is not the specific individuals, but you know, in aggregate, how many people are going to die. And so, you know, when they have those numbers worked out for each year, excess death is the number that exceeds that number of what they expected, indicating something happened, something unusual took place that was a a catastrophic event in this case, because at one point it was a 40%, 40% increased death that was being recorded by the insurance companies. And maybe it's a little less than that, maybe 30%, but whatever it is, the excess death did not happen in 2020, which is a lie we're being told, oh, we got this huge pandemic and all these people are going to die. You better wear a face diaper and get this shot and do everything that we tell you to do. Lock yourself down in your house or else you're going to die. Well, nothing happened in 2020. There was no excess death. If you compare 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, no excess death. So the scam that we were we were played for, we were played for a bunch of uh, fools, basically. The scam was that you know the pandemic was no worse than the seasonal flu. Yeah, the seasonal flu. It's a large number of people that die, but nothing outside of the statistical norm that is nothing that indicated excess death. What is very telling, however, is as soon as these experimental shots began, as soon as they began, there was a spike, a very, you can look at the graph, a very sharp spike up to 40% of those who were excess deaths. That is, you didn't expect this young person who's in the top physical condition and uh, running down the field in, the, in a soccer match to drop over dead, drop dead suddenly. And this happened on the baseball and the uh, basketball and the football, people dropping dead who were extremely healthy by our uh, standards. 
what was going on? Well, we can't sort out everything, but we can look at some of the evidence that others have given to us. And, uh, you know, the fascinating uh, series of books we're going to talk about this morning that we would recommend to all of you, because if you want to understand what happened and also want to understand how to prevent it from happening again, where our God-given right to protect our own health is taken from us, well, understanding the issues here of, well, you can call it the COVID control grid or uh, COVID insanity. Uh, but uh, Phil, go ahead and bring us your thoughts this morning on, on that. Well, I'd like to start out with a book review uh, on the new abnormal, the rise of the biomedical security state. Uh, Senator Rand Paul mentions Aaron Cariotti's The New Abnormal, The Rise of uh, Biomedical State in his book, Deception, The Great COVID Cover-Up. It is a suggestion worth following. Dr. Cariotti's online biography includes the following information. Dr. Cariotti is a plaintiff in the landmark free speech case Missouri versus Biden, challenging government censorship on social media. Dr. Cariotti also serves in teaching and advisory roles at the Brownstone Institute, the Zephyr Institute, the Paul Ramsey Institute, and the Simone Weil Center for Political Philosophy. For many years, he was professor of psychiatry at the University of California at Irvine, the School of Medicine, and he was director of the medical ethics program <clears throat> at that school, uh, oh, at uh, UCI Health, where he chaired the ethics committee. He also chaired the ethics committee at the California State Department of State Hospitals for several years. <clears throat> he was fired from the University of California after challenging the university's COVID vaccine mandate in federal court. Dr. Cariotti's prologue is titled Nuremberg 1947. It's the right place to begin in understanding the COVID-19 control program. Following the more famous 1946 trial of the top Nazis, the trial of the Nazi doctors led to the, led to the prison set uh, sentences for nine and death sentences for seven defendants. <clears throat> As a part of the opinion of the tribunal, it published the Nuremberg Code, containing 10 items that established the criteria for conducting ethical human experimentation. <clears throat> Dr. Cariotti's prologue only explores the first item in the code, but it is the foundation addressing informed, non-coerced consent. Those interested in reading uh, an analysis of all 10 items in the code are directed to Nicholas Bednarski's of... <laughs> Nicholas Bednarski, MD's series, Violation, Violations of Nuremberg Code in COVID-19 Control Program. Dr. Bednarski concludes that all 10 items of the Nuremberg Code have been violated. The new abnormals prologue identifies the connection between the work of the Nazi doctors and the eugenics movement, disturbingly for Americans, that it was initiated in the United States. The new abnormal reveals that Eugenics programs receive funding from major foundations, including those of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, and Kellogg. Intellectuals at Stanford, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton endorsed the movement's aims and participated enthusiastically. <clears throat> Pursuit of eugenics was not restricted to the private sector, but extended to state governments and the federal government. In the 1920s, an impoverished young woman from Virginia, Carrie Buck, was diagnosed with congenital feeble-mindedness and slated for forced sterilization. <clears throat> she challenged the state of, of Virginia's law in federal court, and her case, Buck versus Bell, 
went to the Supreme Court in 1927. Court upheld a state's eugenic sterilization law, resulting in Carey's forced tubal ligation. <clears throat> the new abnormal continues. Hitler himself remarked, I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would be of no value or injurious to the racial stock. The New Abnormals prologue concludes, while the Nuremberg Code did not enjoy the binding force of international law, its principles did inform the laws of most nations, including the United States. The principle of free and informed consent was further developed in the influential World Medical Association Declaration of Health Safety in 1964. Subsequent chapters uh, uh, deal with the new abnormal focuses on the role of declared emergencies in establishing invasive government policies that destroy our personal freedoms. And again, I quote, government policy from lockdowns and school closures to masks and vaccine mandates or passports received its supposed legal justification from the declared state of emergency. But tellingly, the threshold for what constitutes a public health emergency, how many cases, hospitalizations, deaths, etc., was deliberately never defined. So who has this power? At the federal level, with the backing of the president, that person is now Xavier Becerra, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the NIH, the FDA, and the CDC, among other divisions. Becerra? A lawyer and former attorney general of California has no medical training and zero public health experience. <clears throat> How extensive were those powers? Dr. Cariotti reveals that in a state of emergency, the president gains access to an additional 136 statutory powers. He summarizes the implications of this concentration of power. <clears throat> the full significance of what transpired, transpired in March 2020 may have escaped our attention. Without realizing it, we lived through the design and implementation of not just a novel pandemic strategy, but a new political paradigm, a system far more effective at controlling the population than anything previously attempted by Western nations. Under the biosecurity model, the total cessation of every form of political activity and social relationship under lockdowns and social distancing became the ultimate act of civic participation. Neither the pre-war fascist government in Italy nor the communist states of the Soviet Union ever dreamed of implementing such restrictions. We have encountered new terminology that was not medical, according to Dr. Cariotti. It is instructive to reflect on the chosen phrase, social distancing, which is not a medical term, but a political one. A medical or scientific model would have deployed a phrase like physical or personal distancing, but not social distancing. The term suggests not a new model for health, but for organizing society, one that limits human interactions by six feet of space and by masks that cover the face, our locus of interpersonal connection and communication. According to Dr. Cariotti, to see where this biomedical security state will lead, many point to the Chinese social credit system, and this is a useful shorthand for the dystopian future this regime portends. And university biomedical security systems were also sustained by a near-constant stream of propaganda generated by administrators, with catchphrases that would make even bureaucrats at Orwell's Ministry of Truth cringe. For example, administrators constantly admonish students, faculty, and staff to, 
hold one or another accountable. That is Orwellian, of course, but it's a good description of how people were encouraged to betray each other for the Gestapo and the NKVD at a different time. Neither of these infamous security organizations had access to the digital technology that is so pervasive today. How is this used to surveil citizens during the COVID-19 control program? In May of 2022, Vice broke the story that during the previous two years, the CDC tracked millions of phones to see if Americans followed COVID lockdown orders. And what descended on us was not just a novel virus, but a novel, a novel method of social organization and control. Dr. Cariotti identifies two influences on his thinking. <clears throat> Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Although it would be imprudent to do so, one might dismiss the Brave New World as fantasy. But Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago describes a 74-year experiment in real social organization and control in the Soviet Union. Dr. Cariotti makes a compelling case that we in the United States are on the road to a similar kind of tyranny. Dr. Cariotti's The New Abnormal, <clears throat> The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, should be read if it is the only book on COVID-19 control program one reads. But for a broader view, begin with Dr. Bednarski's series, Violations of Nuremberg Code and COVID-19 Control Program, and then read Senator Rand Paul's Deception, The Great Cover-Up. The COVID-19 control program is a medical monster. It's easy to surrender to information overload. Dr. Bednarski's series describes an internationally recognized set of 10 criteria for human experiment experimentation <clears throat> by which COVID-19 control measures might be measured. He concludes, uh, concludes that all 10 were violated in the COVID-19 control program. Senator Paul explores the source of the COVID-19 organism and the efforts made within the government in particular to cover up the facts through propaganda. But if there is any belief that the COVID-19 control uh, program was a one-time phenomenon, Dr. Cariotti dispelled that delusion. That is a perspective we need in order to fully understand the implications of the COVID-19 control program. Now, what is the significance of the new abnormal? It takes a great deal to get people to fight for freedom in spite of the benefits living of living in a free society. Part of that is misplaced set of values. How many parents would give up supporting their child's sports event to attend a protest against the government's destruction of natural rights? Which is the better lifetime lesson to convey? Another obstacle in, uh, to pursuing the truth is general information overload, side effect of the age of automation. Then there is the tendency to ignore past trespasses of our freedom as one-time events. These may be comfortably placed in a social memory hole as we delude ourselves that we are returning to normalcy. It is not until we grasp an idea philosophically that we are prepared to take action. Dr. Cariotti's book is an uncomfortable reminder that unless the tyrant is overthrown, there's only a return to the abnormality that the prior destruction of freedom had signaled. Dr. Cariotti acknowledges being heavily influenced by Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his classic The Gulag Archipelago. Solzhenitsyn called attention to the rationalization used by the Soviet criminal leadership generally, but expounded by Andrei Bushinsky, in particular in connection with the Soviet purge trials of 1936 to 1938. <clears throat> and I quote, Bushinsky claimed, it is never possible for a mortal man 
to establish absolute truth, but relative truth only. He then proceeded to a further step, which jurists of the last 2,000 years had been unwilling to take, that the truth established by interrogation and trial could not be absolute, but only, so to speak, relative. Therefore, when we sign a sentence ordering someone to be shot, we can never be absolutely certain, but only approximately in view of certain hypotheses, and in certain sense that we are punishing a guilty person. Thence arose the most practical solution, that it was useless to seek absolute evidence, for evidence is always relative, or unchallengeable witnesses, for they can say different things at different times. The proofs of guilt were relative, approximate, and the interrogator could find them even when there was no evidence and no witness, without leaving his office, basing his conclusions not only on his own intellect, but also on his hearty sensitivity, his moral forces, in other words, the superiority of someone who has slept well, has been well-fed, and has not been beaten up, and on his character, that is, his willingness to apply cruelty. Solzhenitsyn noted wryly, in only one respect did Vashinsky fail to be consistent and retreat from dialectical logic. For some reason, the executioner's bullet, which he allowed, was not relative, but absolute. Notice that part of Vashinsky's logic made sense, but he also, but he uses a standard propaganda technique, the false binary, to come to a conclusion that's absolutely false for establishing on a grand uh, scale a rationalization for injustice. Since it is difficult to find absolute truth, the alternative is to abandon a system of justice altogether. However, there is a third alternative, to pursue the truth in facts and then make your best judgment of the innocence or guilt of a defendant. Having abandoned justice, Mashinsky then went on uh, went into an Orwellian double-think exercise in which her immorality and lack of conscience became morality. In the final analysis, it was party sensitivity that mattered. And what did the party want? They wanted statistics, the number of interrogations, the number of coerced confessions, the number of long-term imprisonments, and the number of executions. It was a society in which the role of the criminal was glorified while the ordinary citizen became an entry in the database of organized crime. That society dominated the Soviet Union for 74 years until the, the people finally came to their senses and overthrew it. Do the lessons of the Nazi and Soviet era apply to us in the United States? Some would claim that this is the land of liberty and that freedom reigns. Dr. Cariotti, on the other hand, calls us to consider how much progress the police state has made and the role of propaganda in facilitating that. One incident is telling. E. At Georgetown, the dean instructed the Georgetown law community, 98% of which was vaccinated, that students in class were not allowed to remove their masks, even momentarily to ask questions or drink water. After deflecting responsibility for this pronouncement by saying, we're all in this together, and this is your community, he encouraged students to inform on comrades who did not have a mask over both their nose and mouth, by reporting the breach to the administration, all for the sake of community and togetherness, of course. These were not exceptional pronouncements. The dean of the University of Southern California had sent a similar pronouncement to students. In hindsight, we see these pronouncements as ridiculous. How does one drink water through a mask? That's not their purpose. It is to assert who is in charge. If a community will accept these absurdities, and others such as each of us is free to choose our sex instead of accept, accepting the sex we were given at birth. That signals to the ruling elite 
that it is free to impose any arbitrary rule on the nation of sheep that benefits the ruling class. The amazing thing about the first example is that it describes lawyers in training at a renowned Jesuit Catholic institution of higher learning. Xavier University has this description of Jesuit education. Jesuit education is based on a 450-year-old tradition that aims to form high school and college students intellectually, morally, and spiritually toward lives of solidarity, service, and professional success. Emphasis is placed on learning through community service, interdisciplinary courses, and the engagement of faith, theology, philosophy, and ethics studies. Students living intellectual, moral, and spiritual lives? How intellectual is the blind acceptance of absurdities as a replacement for the pursuit of truth? How is that spiritual? The fact that a dean at a Jesuit institution of higher learning would issue such a proclamation and that it would be accepted as gospel suggests the depths of corruption that exists in universities such as Georgetown. Dr. Cariotti begins the last chapter of the New Abnormal with a quote from George Orwell's 1984 that would have applied during the Nazi era, the era of the Soviet Union, and certainly applies to the United States today. Until they become conscious, they will never rebel. Until after they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious. It sounds like the question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Although the idea seems a contradiction, there's some truth in it. Perhaps we need to have just enough consciousness to sense that unless we rebel now, we'll not just lose our liberty, but our humanity as well. Unless we take that first difficult step, almost instinctively, controlled by others over our lives, will not just continue, it will expand. But having successfully rebelled, our sense of freedom will give us the understanding of the experience uh, we have been through. <clears throat> Dr. Cariotti's concluding insight is, history is not set in stone. The future is not predetermined by the past. History is made by the decisions of individuals. There are social, there are economic, there are political, there are all kinds of other forces at work that no doubt shape human history and shape our collective actions. But ultimately, human beings are free and rational individuals who can discern the good, who can freely choose the good, or can choose to pursue other paths. So my advice is to remember that the future is not set in stone. The future really depends on what we do now. And I think all of us want to wake up in 10, 20, 30 years and be able to tell the next generation that we stood up and did everything in our power, regardless of the outcome, to make sure that we were handing on a world to them that was humane, that was livable, that was just, and that was free. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for uh, a good review of uh, uh, Cariachi's book, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Just uh, have gotten and haven't uh, gotten into it yet, but it's fascinating that uh, he points back to the eugenics program, and that's fascinating to me because the eugenics program in America preceded Nazis' eugenics program. In other words, the Nazis looked to what we were doing, and I think you pointed that out in one of his quotes. The no Nazis looked to what the Western countries were doing with cases of Buck v. Bell as, as an example, they looked to that and said, oh, well, that's a great idea. Let's not only control the population, let's control reproduction. Who can have children? And that infamous case, Buck v. Bell, uh, the uh, author of that opinion, and by the way, we need to remember the Supreme Court never makes rulings that are binding under the law. They give opinions. 
and opinions about the law and as how it applies to a particular case. But in that case, this was written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And he infamously said, this is right there in the text of the Supreme Court opinion that he wrote. He said, three, gen- regarding, uh, you know, uh, Buck, three generations of imbeciles is quite enough. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a, a highly educated man like Oliver Wendell Holmes gets to determine who gets to reproduce and who does not get to reproduce. Uh, that's where it began. But obviously it uh, went way, way beyond that. Another huge player in the eugenics movement that is often not known in, in our community is the Planned Parenthood's founder, <laughs> excuse me, Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger. She spoke about human weeds, that is certain people and ethnic groups in the world that ought to be weeded out of the human garden. She actually started something called the Negro Project. It was designed to get rid of Negroes. And she admitted that. She said, we don't want any uppity black person to get the idea in their head that we're planning to exterminate the black. So let's hire some some pastors, some black pastors that can convince them otherwise. And lo and behold, and this is pretty uh, astonishing, the first uh, recipient of the Margaret Sanger Award, I believe it was 1962, just before she died, was Martin Luther King. Hmm. And was he one of those hired pastors that were going to persuade the black people that Planned Parenthood was not intent on, uh, on actually black genocide? But if you look at the evidence, you see that indeed, no, Planned Parenthood is intent on black genocide, where it, it situates its abortuaries, its uh, killing fields, are always in minority communities and always where the poor are because Margaret Sanger instructed her followers, we need to get rid of the human weeds. And so the fascinating thing to me is that this idea started here and crossed the pond back to Germany and was taken up by the Nazis in a far fuller manner than, than what we were doing here. We were just seeking to prevent reproduction. I decided, let's just get rid of the people altogether. Uh, let's get rid of the gypsies and the Jews and the Christians. And, and they did, uh, in their killing fields, they did an enormous damage in, in that regard. So I, I'm you know, very pleased that Dr. Cariarty, Cariarty has pointed this out, that what we are facing really is a depopulation agenda. In fact, the World Health Organization, which is uh, one of the manipulators in charge of what was happening with the pandemic or scandemic, uh, and uh, the World Health Organization, of course, being a UN agency, so the UN is in on this as well. If you look at the history of the World Health Organization, the very first president of that uh, World Health Organization was a clear eugenicist who wanted to reduce the human population. And the second, likewise, and the third, I believe, as well. And the what we really need to rena- rename the World Health Organization so that we understand what it is we are up against is the World Depopulation Organization, not the WHO, the WDO. They are intent on depopulating the planet. And the evidence here is this is what COVID and the the lockdowns and all of those things, they were all about the World Health Organization pushing forward. Uh, you, you can't really call it eugenics because eugenics is, you know, you're going to prevent people from reproducing. This is more like murder, murder incorporated. You're going to kill people outright. Uh, that's what we saw. Now, we need to know that uh, the World Health Organization certainly is not finished, and I appreciate that uh, you've made that point, Phil. The battle is still intense. In fact, this next May, May 2024, the World Health Organization has on their agenda a vote 
of all the nations of the world that are part of the World Health Organization to require basically a medical takeover of the a sovereignty of every nation on earth. Their intent is, in this decision, to say the World Health Organization gets to define a pandemic. You know, they could say, oh, there's a pandemic of gun violence. There's a pandemic of nose picking or whatever they want, you know. And so they get to define what it is. They got to define when it is achieved, that is, how many people have this sickness or whatever, uh, in order to say that, oh, well, we got a crisis. And then the really nefarious part of this uh, agreement that they're working on is that once they declare there's a pandemic, World Health Organization takes control over the medical uh, biomedical security of each state, each nation on earth. They could tell that nation, all your people got to put on those face diapers, even though we know they don't work. Everybody's got to get this experimental shot, even though that we, we know that doesn't work. It doesn't protect your health. It doesn't actually uh, keep you from getting sick. It doesn't prevent you from going to the hospital. It doesn't do any of these things. In fact, it might well kill you as it has killed millions already. So if this passes in May, we have a huge problem. Part of the problem is we have a Senate that has basically fallen asleep on the job. We know that our U.S. Constitution says that all treaties uh, that are entered into by the president do not become valid until the Senate votes to confirm those treaties. But they've done a very tricky and nefarious, well, Nazi-like thing here. Oh, they've redefined this. Well, this isn't a treaty. This is some kind of agreement. I don't remember the exact term they use for it, but they've gotten away from calling it a treaty in order to avoid our senators having to vote on it. And I think they're doing that to protect the senators because many of the senators are in the pay of these evil beasts that are running the scandemic and running the big pharma, and they're going to do whatever their handlers tell them. So although our system was designed to protect us through uh, that treaty-making process, it's doubtful that our senators would actually do it. But we're not even attempting to do that. We're just handing over the sovereignty of these United States to a corrupt organization, the World Depopulation Organization. And uh, so that means that, you know, they're out for our blood, literally. Is there any hope? Is there any way to turn this back? First, of course, Americans need to wake up. Uh, that's why we exist here. We, the people of Constitution Matters, to wake people up to the realities of what's happening and also make it clear that what's being done is unconstitutional. And if something is unconstitutional, that's just not an opinion. It's unconstitutional means it's unlawful. It's a violation of the supreme law of the land. Article 6 of our Constitution, the supreme law of the land is the United States Constitution and the laws made in pursuance thereof and the treaties entered into in pursuance thereof. Well, this isn't even a treaty and it's not being entered into in any right way. Our legislative body that makes law has no input in this. It's a whole bunch of unelected bureaucrats in the U.N., World Health Depopulation Organization that is actually making all the decisions that are calling all the shots. And if they're allowed to do this in May, then the people have to stand against their own government that's going to say, we're going to obey the WHO or the WDO. We're going to obey them and we're going to lock you down and we're going to force you to get take these shots. And I think it has to happen with governors. Governors have the power to say, not in my state. You're not doing this here. This is criminal. This is unconstitutional. This is a violation of the law. This is not the supreme law of the land. So the governors can stop the, the biomedical tyranny uh, from coming into their state. But we know many governors are already paid off. And so they're of, of absolutely no use to protecting our God-given rights. 
Uh, but in addition to that, we do have at the local level, the county sheriff. And the county sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer in his county, the CLEO, chief law enforcement officer. The Supreme Court has acknowledged that that is the case, which is uh, English common law and American common law all the way back to Magna Carta. So the sheriff can act as the governor can also act and say, I know what is constitutional and this is not constitutional to deprive people of their God-given right to make a medical decision for themselves. Yes, if you want to get the shot, go ahead, be my guest. But if you prefer not to be injected with an experimental poisonous thing that uh, has killed millions, well, you should be able to say, I am in control of my life. My life is not the hand at the hand of some idiot bureaucrat in a, a world depopulation organization. And we need to train the American people that we have seen endless violations of our, our, our constitution. The uh, tracking that you mentioned, Bill, uh, Phil, uh, the tracking of uh, all the cell phones and determine who was abiding by the COVID regulations and who was not, who was, uh, you know, violating that. That's an absolute violation of our supreme law. The Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment says, unless the crime a crime has been committed, no surveillance on any American citizen, no digging into their papers or uh, tracking their location with their phone. None of that is permissible. And to me, the thing that is so egregious right now is that none of these people in the bureaucracy at the federal government or state governments has been brought to account, account for the crimes which they have committed. They have violated the supreme law of the land, and at this point at least, they have gotten away with it. I also appreciate uh, bringing up the Soviet uh, situation because clearly, here's where it leads. If there is no absolute truth, which is again what the anti- Christian atheists in the Soviet Union said, there is no absolute truth. Well, if there is no absolute truth, there is no right and wrong. And so uh, Vyshinsky is correct to say, well, then, you know, we can't be uh, certain that we're, the person we're sentencing is really guilty. In contrast to that, think of our standard here in these United States when you're put on trial, especially if it's a capital crime, it must be beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty of the crime you are accused of having committed. If there is a doubt, if there's reasonable doubt, then no, the person is to be let go. We'd rather see someone who has violated the law go free than to punish someone who has not violated the law. And people are, I know that uh, rankles in people's bones because they go, ah, no, we want to get the criminals. But believe me, those criminals are not getting away with it. They're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20, and they're going to give an account for every crime they have committed, and there will be hell to pay for all eternity. These criminals will not get away with it. And that, by the way, goes for all of the pol political class that have participated in COVID, whether it's Biden and Harris and the people on the Supreme Court and the people in, in the Senate and the House that have gone along with this, they're going to have to give an account for their criminal action. In fact, I think Vashinsky is, is uh, quite prescient in, in what he says because we realize, wait a minute, if there is no standard of right and wrong, and we know that people lie, which is essentially what he's saying, we can't trust any of the witnesses because you know they lie, and therefore we don't know what the truth is, and we can't get at the truth because the person may be lying on the witness stand. But what that produces is a system of clear injustice, where sometimes the guilty are not punished. And many times the innocent are punished. And that's what the evil USSR did uh, to millions and millions of people who did no crime 
And instead, you could, as you rightly say, we could turn the tables and describe it this way. The government in that country, the communists in in USSR and the communists in China, we could add, and the communists in Venezuela and Cuba, now all the communists around the world, Pol Pot down there uh, in, in Cambodia when he was still alive, they are the mafia. That is right, the mafia. They're a gang of criminals who don't care about the law. In our country, we have a law. It's called the United States Constitution, the supreme law of the land. But the mafia doesn't care about following the law or obeying the law. They go ahead with whatever they want to do. And we see the, the opening of this taking place right now. We don't have a Department of Justice down in Washington, D.C. It's a part, Department of Injustice. There's a two-tiered standard of justice. If you burned and pillaged, destroyed, and even murdered people during the summer of love in 2020, you got, a, got away scot-free. Nobody charged. Nobody went to prison. Everybody dismissed. Oh, but if you just happened to be in the Capitol building, which, by the way, is the People's Building, and you can argue, ah, trespassing or not. But anyway, it's a very low level compared to burning down millions and millions of dollars of property, destroying people's livelihood, and all that the BLM gang did, you get away with it, according to the Department of Justice. Oh, but if you happen to trespass on the sacred grounds of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, you are the worst criminal in the world. We're going to throw you in the hooskow and never let you see the light of day. And indeed, we have seen what we're, we're moving into is exactly what is described in uh, the, communist, uh, uh, the communist world. So we need to take the, the warnings, as Solzhenitsyn uh, uh, Nation has, has rightly told us. We need to realize that what is happening is a destruction of truth, a destruction of justice, and a destruction of our constitutional republic. But we the people can stop it. We can stand up to the criminals and prevent them uh, from continuing to destroy. And one of the places we could do it is right there with their medical tyranny. We could say, we will not comply. And I, I don't remember the exact company, but uh, earlier this fall, there was a company that was trying to impose mask mandates again on their people. And the people rebelled and said, no way. And a large enough number of the, the employees in that company said, we're not doing that. We know that masks are worthless and this is all a lie. And they stood up to the company. And guess what? The company backed down. And of course, the mainstream media didn't report any of this because they, they don't want anybody to know that it is possible for we the people to stand up for our God-given rights and back down on the wicked tyrants that are trying to steal our rights and, indeed, with the depopulation agenda, trying to kill us. What do you think, Bill? Well, I have just three brief comments. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and other members of the elite view themselves as godlike. I mean, that's the essence of, of secularism, if you will. Um, second, is that uh, depopulation advocates are very intense. I mean, they, they really believe this, yet nobody sets the example in that. They, that's for others, you know, to die, to reduce the, the population. And the third is that uh, uh, pathological organisms appear on an average of three times per year. Now, what that means is that um, the people in the elite, if you will, uh, in government, can arbitrarily select any time they want to impose COVID-19-like controls or worse. And that's why we the people need to stand up and say, no, these are violations of our constitution. These are violations of our God-given rights. When we look at the Declaration of Independence, you do not have a right to health care. And again, that's one of the lies that's been sold what, ever since the 60s when they created Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. People began to believe, I have a right to health care. Well, wait a minute. 
Let's consider your right to life. The right to life means that no one has the right to deprive you of your life without due process of law that would say that you have committed a crime worthy of death, okay? But to say that healthcare is a right means that I can walk into a hospital and force them to take care of my medical needs without paying them. I could force them to be my slaves. The nurses, my slaves, the anesthesia. I could force all these people to be my slaves because I have a right. I contrast that with the right to life. The right to life, don't take my life unless there's a clear uh, cause legally that I have committed a capital crime. Contrast that with I am going to force you to serve me for free. That's slavery. And uh, I mean, people today are all against slavery. They're up in their arms. Ah, slavery is a horrible thing. And they're talking about slavery 150 years ago, not recognizing that they actually support slavery when they support the idea that you have medical rights, that you can force other people to serve you without paying them, and that uh, that is what is just. And so I think the whole idea got got its start in that that kind of vein, and then proceeded to uh, you know move to this point where well wait a minute if uh, you have these rights then the government is in control of of determining when those rights are uh, available when they're not and you don't have a right not to wear a mask I was told when I went into one store and so I I, ate, I went back out and I grabbed a a, a mosquito net you know there's you know, it's got you know good size holes in a mosquito net I just put this mosquito net over my head. And I walk back in the store and say, oh, that's not a mask. It's like, hey, I've covered my face. You wanted me with my face covered. It's covered. <laughs> and they, they, it was so funny because, Phil, they, they refused to serve me. And I had just poured, I think, 10 gallons of uh, reverse osmosis water in, in my jugs. And they refused to let me pay. So I said, okay, I've offered to pay you. You refuse to pay. You refuse my pay. And therefore, I'm going to take my jugs with you unless you would prefer that I pour out the 10 gallons of water here on the floor. You know, which you prefer. And again, they're all upset. So I walked out in the parking lot with my jugs and I put them in the car. And then somebody came out. Oh, oh, here's here's what you owe. I said, okay, I'm willing to pay. I have no problem paying. But you scodes who don't know good and evil are participating in an evil scheme to prevent me from being able to breathe. That's all those masks do, prevent you from being able to breathe. And you're right, Phil, to say they're really a symbol of submission. We know medically they have no, no, nothing to do with your health, but they are a symbol of submission that you've submitted to this, this vast beast system that wants you to comply at, at every turn. Well, if we have time here, we could take a look at uh, the Barrington Declaration. I don't know if yeah, you uh, yeah, well, let's have give that it a up, but that's, let's, yeah, let's give it a try. This, this is really interesting because it, it was released by just a large number of uh, medical professionals uh, going back to October of 2020, just seven months after all of this program kicked in. I'll read the first three paragraphs. We can comment after uh, each of these paragraphs. The Great Barrington Declaration, as infectious disease epide- epidemiologists and public health scientists, we had grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focus protection. Coming from both left and right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, and mortality, uh, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come. With the working class and the younger members of society, 
carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged dis- disproportionately harmed. Any comment, uh, Pastor David? Yes. Well, it, it is good that they're identifying science. In other words, they're talking about real facts, real data, not the made-up stuff of, of the World Health Organization, the other gang that uh, wanted us to just trust the science. Anthony Fauci, he's the science, trust whatever he says. Like, excuse me, that's not how science is done. Science has debate, give and take. Science prevent, presents facts, and they're doing that, and, and applaud them for that. Well, let me continue with the next paragraph. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. Now, remember, this is just seven months after all of these controls were uh, placed, put in place. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. Comments? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Influenza, there's the annual seasonal flu, at least among the young. This is no danger. In fact, there are more danger with the seasonal flu. So again, we were sold that lie. This is the worst thing to ever happen in the world. Now, we, stopped, we need to stop believing these propagandists. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity. That is the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. Comments? Mm-hmm. Again, there's science at work. You know, yes. the whole idea of herd immunity was poo-pooed. If I remember what the mainstream uh, talking heads were saying, ah, yeah, now we're never going to reach herd immunity. We've, we've got to have a social distancing, which as you point out, social distancing is nothing science about it at all. So we're talking about real scientists who are making a statement that was clearly ignored and just swept under, under the rug. The Great Barrington Declaration continues, the most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection, while better protecting those who are at higher risk, at highest risk. We call this focused protection. That, that, that is excellent because focused protection says not everyone needs to lock down. Not everyone uh, would need to wear a mask or these other things. No. There's a, a wide number of people in the populace that you're actually harming them by not allowing them to be exposed to the pathogens that are out there. I had uh, uh, one of my family members who hiked the Appalachian Trail during that, that crazy year of 2020 when they reached the end. And there were very few people on the trail because they told the trail's closed. Uh, and uh, so those who were there hiking together, they were a very small community. And she was healthy the entire time that she was out on the trail. But as soon as she came back into the general population, oh, she got hit by one thing after another because she had not been exposed to the pathogens that were currently in circulation. It's better to be exposed than to not be exposed, unless you were in that vulnerable class of people that needs to be protected. Continuing, adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. 
When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented and is well within the scope of the capability of public health professionals. Again, that's science. They're, they're talking actual real science, not the fake stuff uh, that we were handed by Fauci and company. And finally, the concluding paragraph, those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. <clears throat> Simple hygiene measures, such as hand washing and staying home when sick, should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities, such as sports, should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. Mm, amen. You know, when, when you think about what took place, uh, that was great damage done to students who were not able to learn in person and, and trying to learn with a screen in front of them didn't really work for them, and it, especially if their parents weren't home. Uh, that was a disaster for the education of children uh, during that year. But we look at the rest of uh, what they were saying is really they were communicating a message to us, pointing a finger at every human being and saying, you are the disease. You are dangerous. And you shouldn't be close to any other human beings. In fact, you shouldn't even see other human. Let's put you in solitary confinement because you are the virus. And that's the hateful message that came from these wicked depopulation people who want to murder most of the population of the world. I mean, this, it's been destroyed now, but in uh, Elberton, Georgia was the Georgia Guidestones, the very first principle of which is to keep human population at half a billion in a steady state relationship with nature. In other words, they're, uh, they don't want to see seven, they want to see elimination of at least seven billion people on the planet, get it down to half a billion. And then that, they say, is what is sustainable. These people hate humanity. And like you pointed out earlier, if they're really committed to depopulation, why don't they start with themselves? Well, one could question this, this declaration. Uh, has this been issued by some radical group? Well, let me give you the, the credentials of the three authors to begin with. Dr. Martin Kohldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard University, a biostatistician and epidemiologist with expertise in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine sa uh, safety evaluations. Dr. Sunetra Gupta, professor at Oxford University, an epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, vaccine development, and mathematical modeling of infectious diseases. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor, Stanford University Medical School, a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations. Now, if they have anybody else supporting them, how about 939,000 plus medical wow. professionals? <laughs> And yet this was buried. We, we never heard about this in the mainstream media. You had to go looking for it you to, to go find looking it. for it. Absolutely. But Absolutely. It, is a, it is a great statement. And they were, they were dealing with real science. Yeah. And again, like you said, they didn't know the outcome because they're in the midst of it. But they said, here's what, scientifically speaking, makes sense to do. But of course, none of their recommendations were followed. 
uh, because I don't, I believe what you said in, in your piece is that what we have is a shift from a government that is protecting our God-given rights to a government that is pursuing its own agenda, which we find is an extremely evil agenda of depopulating, getting rid of most of the people on, on planet Earth. That's what they're about. And they, they see us as a virus on the face of the planet they, they want to eliminate. But maybe we, the people, we outnumber them by a huge amount. We outnumber them. The people who want to live and not be killed by them outnumber them. And we just need to rise up and say, no, not on my watch. You're not doing this to me. You're not doing this to my children. Let me just add one revelation that came out, I think, a couple of days ago by Dr. Robert Malone, who is part of this group, by the way, and a leading epidemiologist. One of the things that they've discovered is that in creating the, vac the so-called vaccine, it's a mechanism it's called mRNA, it's not a vaccine, but in doing that, unintentionally, DNA from the vaccine itself has... Um, been known to intercept an individual's DNA chain and become a part of that, changing the nature of that individual altogether. I mean, one could not come up with a more frightening finding than that. Yes, that sounds like Dr. Frankenstein. Let's, let's play with life, pretending we are God and manipulate life, and in this case, manipulate life in order to kill a maximum number of people. I, I believe that's what their real agenda is. Uh, th these are evil, tremendously evil people. They need to be stopped. And if we restore our constitutional re republic, they can be stopped because our constitutional republic does not give health authorities any authority over our health in, in the way in which it was conducted. Yes, if a person is extremely sick, they could be quarantined. But what happened in there? They quarantined the healthy, not the sick. It's completely unscientific. It, it's a, a evil agenda. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and coming to you with the Freedom Airways of WFYL, we want to spread this message far and wide. So check out our website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcast down the bottom is We the People, uh, resources on the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, that everyone in America should train on these things to be able to push back the mafia government that has taken control and plans to even take more control over our life, liberty, and our property.